Amen. That song is the gospel. It is speaking of uh, the doctrine of imputed righteousness, which is to say that Jesus died in our place, that we are the guilty ones, and Jesus died as if he was one of the guilty ones. At the same time, Jesus also gives his righteousness to us so that we could live as if we were innocent, as if we were righteous. Um, This is, of course, the precious gospel message. And if you are one who's not repented and believed on Christ, I would urge you today to trust in him because he is a sufficient savior. Let's go ahead and begin in a word of prayer today. Lord, we thank you for your kindness to us. We thank you for the mercies that we have seen over and over again. We cannot count them, even if we were to simply try to count all of the mercies within uh, our, the range of our senses at this very moment. The fact that you have given to us the ability to feel the warmth of the sun, the fact that you've given to us the ability to hear the insects and the birds, the fact that you have given to us the, the vast number of colors Uh, in the world, and we enjoy being in creation because, as Psalm 19 reminds us, the heavens declare the glory of God. And so we look out at the world, and we cannot help but marvel at your goodness and your kindness. Now, we pray also that you would help uh, stricken our hearts today, help us to be sensitive to the word uh, in uh, the Bible that you've given to us, and I pray that you'd encourage us because of it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. In 2014, a story was released uh, that a man paid for eating out at a restaurant 70 years after his meal. In 1941, a man and his friend ate out at a restaurant called the Lamb's Grill in Salt Lake City, and they realized that after they received the $1 bill for their meal, that they did not have enough money, and so they ran off without paying the bill. According to the article, the man returned to the restaurant 70 years later to pay the bill. He brought his daughter with him and was too embarrassed to go in himself. He wanted to give a little bit more than a dollar, I suppose, to account for inflation or whatever. But he gave $5 to the restaurant and he sent his daughter in to give the $5 to the restaurant owner. The article says that for those 70 years of that man's life, He had been racked with guilt. And of course, we understand that biblically speaking, this is you and I. We are racked with guilt. Whether or not we feel that guilt in terms of our shame, we are objectively guilty. And what I would like to do over the next three weeks here is to, uh, during Church in the Park, is begin a series, a short series, three-part series, on God's grace. And sometimes when we do church in the park, I continue on with our normal sermon series, and sometimes I start something new. And I'd like to just start something new here. We're currently going through the book of 1 Corinthians uh, for our normal Sunday morning uh, messages. And um, I'd like to start a series on grace. I I also would like to, um, as a side note here, each message uh, will be self-contained, which means that While there is a sense in which they'll build on one another, uh, if we have visitors and otherwise that maybe come at the last uh, time, it will be self-contained and you'll be able to understand uh, without having uh, some of the backdrop from the previous ones. Why a sermon series on the topic of grace? After all, we're Christians 
and we know all about grace. Half of the churches in America have grace in their name. By force of habit, hardly a Christian offers a public prayer without thanking God for his grace. Uh, We have made the word grace into a name for our children. And walk into any Christian bookstore and you will see the word grace plastered on half of the decor items. And yet I am convinced that for all of our talk on the topic of grace, uh, we have very little understanding of its length, of its width, and of its depth. Now there are a few ways in which we could explore the topic of God's grace. And I think that it will be best to look at what grace does And so in light of that, uh, my tentative plan is to preach three sermons. One today by the title of The Grace of God to Forgive. Number two, next week, Lord willing, The Grace of God to Justify. And then, Lord willing, the third one, The Grace of God to Sanctify. And so today we'll be looking at God's grace to forgive. What is the length and width and depth of God's grace as seen in the doctrine of forgiveness? And so we'll be using uh, an outline today, really just three parts. Number one, we want to see guilt and shame. Number two, we want to see an inconvenient truth. And number three, we want to see grace in forgiveness. And so these first two points will be building up to kind of the culmination here of God's grace as it's seen in the doctrine of forgiveness. The first one here that we'll be looking at is this idea of guilt and shame. Why is forgiveness needed in the first place? Of course, it is pointless to talk about the topic of forgiveness if we don't know why we need it. And in the same way, you may be a little bit confused if a judge informed you that you were pardoned of your crime if he never told you what your crime was in the first place. The reason that we need forgiveness and the reason that forgiveness is required for us is because all of us, as mankind, all of us, we are all universally guilty. Forgiveness implies guilt. The Bible reminds us in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned. Innocent people do not require forgiveness. Guilty people require forgiveness. I recall one time a number of years ago, uh, an individual apologized to me for something that he had done, and he simply apologized. Uh, he, he didn't say, will you forgive me, but just said, I'm sorry for this. And I responded to that apology by saying, I forgive you. And the response to my statement was uh, a little bit of, of nervous laughter. Now, why would somebody, after they apologize to you, be uncomfortable and give a little bit of nervous laughter at the statement, I forgive you? And the reason, of course, is obvious because my statement of I forgive you implies that I agree that they were wrong. It implies that they are guilty. Most of us would probably admit, after apologizing to somebody, that we would rather hear, oh, it's okay, then the words, I forgive you. You apologize to someone and they say, oh, it's all good, it's okay. Or you apologize to someone and they say, I forgive you. Those two statements do not sit quite the same way with us. Why? Because here is what is being said when we say, I forgive you. We are saying, yes, 
I agree with you that you are guilty, and I agree with you that you have sinned, but I do pardon you and release you from that debt. In other words, there is no such thing as forgiveness without guilt. Innocent people don't need forgiveness. Guilty people do. People who owe a debt need forgiveness. And yet I am convinced that we have distorted this concept of forgiveness today. And the tension that we face, at least as Christians, is that we want to have God's grace and God's forgiveness And at the same time, we want to keep our innocence. We want to, in other words, have our cake and eat it too. Maybe we could put the tension this way that we face in our own hearts, and that is this. I want forgiveness, but I do not want to need forgiveness. And yet, need it, we do. We need forgiveness because of our sin, because of our shame, and because of our guilt. Sin, to give some definitions here, sin is the act itself, the transgression itself. That is true of all of us. We are all sinners. Guilt is the legal declaration that I have sinned, that I have committed a trespass, that I have done wrong. So we have sin, the act of transgression itself. We have guilt The legal declaration, which is objective in nature, I am objectively guilty. And then number three, we have the word shame. And the shame is the subjective reality, our inward response or feeling to the fact that I am legally declared guilty of sin. In other words, we sin and we are guilty as charged. How do you plead? Guilty. Shame comes into play because of our own inward response to sin and guilt. We might say, I feel shame or I feel ashamed. I say that shame is subjective because we all certainly respond to our own sin differently. Sometimes it plagues us more than others. Sometimes uh, we feel shame after 70 years of not paying a bill and we have to go back and pay that. Nevertheless, the shame portion is our response. It is the emotional component. And by the way, shame is an appropriate and right way to respond to our own sinfulness. We all know this feeling, and we may be able to relate to Proverbs 28 and verse 1 that says, the wicked flee when no one pursues. Uh, You're so ridden with guilt that you're constantly looking over your shoulder. Macbeth feels this shame so strongly that after he kills Duncan, he begins hallucinating and goes practically insane. Lady Macbeth, you may recall, tries to wash imaginary blood stains off of her hands to no avail. Granted, of course, this is not real life, but it does represent the reality that it is possible for a guilty conscience to drive people to insanity. And by the way, that is a good thing because it means that your conscience is working. It tells you that you have your shame, which is a good thing, tells you that you are objectively guilty, which tells you that you have sinned, which drives you, hopefully, to deal with that sin in a meaningful way. Shame is the appropriate response. In fact, it is wrong not to feel shame. God condemns Jerusalem, by the way, for not feeling shame. In Jeremiah 6, and verse 15, He says, were they ashamed when they committed abomination? 
No, they were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. But whether or not you feel the subjective guilt, you are still objectively guilty. Even if you are one who has said no to your conscience time and time and time again until that voice stops and you feel no more shame, the objective guilt remains. And that objective guilt requires a penalty, and therefore it requires, to keep on track with our topic today, forgiveness. Remember, innocent people do not need forgiveness. So when you acknowledge God's forgiveness of you, you are at the same time acknowledging your guilt. Forgiveness presupposes guilt. Forgiveness presupposes sin. And forgiveness presupposes shame. All three. You cannot separate forgiveness from guilt. God forgives what? If I'm going to say I accept God's forgiveness, then the next question is what is God forgiving? What is he pardoning? He is pardoning, forgiving something. This, of course, is reality number one when it comes to forgiveness. And that is, to summarize, that forgiveness presupposes guilt Innocent people do not need forgiveness. You cannot have your cake and eat it too. If you are innocent, then no forgiveness is required. Yet because the entire human race is objectively guilty, we all need pardon and we all need forgiveness. That brings us to our second reality on this topic of forgiveness, and that is what I'm calling an inconvenient truth. If you thought this was inconvenient, it becomes more inconvenient. This is a reality that we have to understand before we can get to the conclusion about God's forgiveness and his grace. The the doctrine of forgiveness does not make sense if you don't understand this. In fact, it doesn't make sense if you don't understand the first point, and it doesn't make sense if you don't understand this second point. Both are prerequisites for understanding forgiveness. And I think this second point is one that we are likely to miss when we're talking about the idea of forgiveness. And I want to read to you a number of passages where we see this, uh, this reality explained to us. We read in Nahum 1 verse 3, the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. Exodus 23 and verse 7, I will not acquit the wicked. Exodus 34, 6 through 7, the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. Numbers 14, verse 18, the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. Joshua 24 and verse 19, God will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. Now, since we are, I would assume all of us, Bible-believing Christians, it does us no good to pretend that these passages don't exist or to move on to, quote-unquote, more encouraging news. Because this is in our Bible and we believe that our Bible is true, we have to contend with this, we have to wrestle with this, and we have to understand how these passages relate to the other passages that we'll come to in a few moments. This concept that I'm about to explain to you is a concept that may be somewhat analogous to C.S. Lewis's deep magic, or better yet, his deeper magic concept. That is to say... That the truth in these five verses is so foundational, so essential to the very nature of God himself, that it would be more likely that gravity itself could be undone than God would violate his nature in this way. What this means, to get straight to the point, is that God cannot be bribed. 
God will not sweep sin under the rug. God will not look the other way. God is a strict accountant and he will tally every transgression to the very last cent. There are certain rules and there are certain laws that are baked into the universe in a fundamental way that they can never ever be violated and this is one of them. The law that is baked into the universe and to state this as straightforwardly as I know how is this. God will never violate his justice for any reason. God will never violate his own character and his own nature in such a way as to bypass his holiness or to bypass his justice. I remember teaching a Bible study here uh, at our local college and I made this same exact point. And I remember one of the students protested and said, wait a second, wait a second, but God is a God of grace. And this is true. But God is also a God who is holy, and God is also a God who is just. And the mistake that is frequently made is the assumption that in order to give us grace, God overlooks his justice. That is the assumption, the false assumption that is made, I don't know, maybe in a majority of churches in our country. The assumption is that, yes, God is just, and yes, God hates sin, but he's also gracious and merciful, and he will overlook his justice in order to pardon us. That is not true. God will never overlook his justice for any reason. He will not overlook his justice for you and I. He will not violate his character for us. He will maintain integrity and truthfulness to his own nature and his own character, including his justice and his holiness and his wrath. It is important to understand this reality that God will never violate his justice for any reason. In fact, so certain is this, that God says anyone else who justifies wicked people they are counted as an abomination. In Proverbs 17 and verse 15, we read this, he who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. And so the inconvenient truth is that God is more committed to his character, to his justice, and to his holiness than pardoning guilty sinners, which is all of us. Do you realize that God does not even pardon fallen angels? In Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 16, we read, Surely it is not angels that he helps. God gives fallen angels their just punishment. And the question is this, If God will not violate his holiness, how then will he forgive and it is to that topic that we now turn. As we move to this third section of today's message, I want to summarize what we have seen thus far. We have seen two points. Number one, because of our sin, we are guilty objectively. And because of our guilt, we feel 
shame. And by the way, if you no longer feel shame for your sin, something is desperately wrong and that will not drive you to find a resolution to your sinfulness. That's point number one. Point number two is this. God is more committed to maintaining his justice than he is to pardoning guilty sinners. Now what I'm about to tell you about God's grace in his forgiveness, and remember, we're talking about grace here as the overarching theme, specifically for this message, God's grace seen in forgiveness. What I'm about to tell you about God's grace and forgiveness has no meaning to you at all unless you understand point number one and point number two. You see, until you grasp number one and until you grasp number two, you will think that God's grace is like a cup of water. But after you grasp number one and number two, you will see God's grace like Niagara Falls. It is more abundant than we ever could have imagined. I grew up in upstate New York, a short distance from uh, the Kinzu Bridge in Pennsylvania. And uh, I used to cross that bridge many, many times as a kid. And the bridge was built in 1882. And it was, at the time, called the eighth wonder of the world. It was 301 feet tall, and it was 2,052 feet long. It was used commercially until 1959. And the bridge, when it was built, was the largest and the tallest bridge in the entire world. To say that this bridge was an engineering marvel is an understatement. Unfortunately, it was damaged by a tornado back in 2003. You actually can still visit the bridge. They have built uh, a rather impressive visitor center with all the history and the engineering behind the bridge. And actually, uh, they receive more visitors per year now that it's fallen, ironically, um, than when it was uh, fully um, intact. There's a, a short walk. You can walk out the part that didn't fall down, and they call it their Kinzu Skywalk, where you can go and overlook the whole gorge. Uh, in comparison to this bridge, a small little bridge over a creek is nothing. If those same engineers built a 10-foot bridge over a tiny little creek, you wouldn't even think twice about it. There would be nothing, of course, to marvel at. You will not marvel at this bridge until you understand the distance that it had to cross. You will never marvel at the bridge until you understand the height that it had to stand at. If these same engineers had never built the bridge, you would probably not think much of them if you read about them in a history book. But after you see the chasm that had to be crossed, you say, you did that? Are, are you serious? You, you built something that could be that long and that high? In the same way, a theology of forgiveness can only be understood and marveled at when you understand the depth of our sin, the length of our guilt, the distance of our shame, and the absolute unwavering holiness of God. The proper response to divine forgiveness is this. You did that? You forgave me of that? In light of this, we now look at God's grace in forgiveness. God's grace operates not by bypassing his holiness 
and his justice and his wrath, but God's grace operates by satisfying it in full. This is crucial, and this is the hinge point of the entire sermon, okay? If you have allowed your thoughts to wander, I am calling you to bring your thoughts back to front and center right now. And if you jot one thing down, this is the thing to jot down. God's grace operates not by bypassing his holiness and his justice and his wrath, but by satisfying it in full. The way that the chasm is bridged in Christianity is that Jesus is held accountable and guilty and payable for your debt in full, in your stead. What this means then is that instead of dismissing your debt, it is paid in full. God does not dismiss debts. He is not in the business of dismissing debts, but he does pay debts. In Christianity then, debt is never erased. It is transferred from one party to another party. Where the grace then is featured here and where it is on display is in the fa- this fact that God would do something that cost himself so much. It hits you differently when somebody pays off your $100,000 house mortgage versus someone who pays for your $12 meal at Old Carolina. The reason is because you recognize how much $100,000 is worth. You realize that when that person pays off your $100,000 debt, that it costs them a lot. It was not free. It came at a great cost, and it came at a great price. Something that was supposed to cost you a lot costs you nothing. Not because it was dismissed, not because it was overlooked, not because it was swept under the rug, but because somebody else paid for it. Forgiveness is not making a debt disappear. Forgiveness is transferring your debt to somebody else. And in the case of the gospel, God pays the debt himself. He takes it on his own person. God did not force somebody else to pay the debt, partly because nobody else could. God himself took the penalty for our sin onto himself and that satisfied his own justice in full. He took the full weight of an eternity of hell for all of the redeemed and he placed the burden on himself until justice was satisfied, until holiness was satisfied. That is grace. That is what grace is. Forgiveness without payment is unjust. Forgiveness without paying off the debt is unrighteousness. God says, as you remember that we saw earlier, that he will by no means clear the guilty. What this means is that God will never, 
ever let anyone off the hook without satisfying his justice and his holiness and his wrath. God forgives and his forgiveness fulfills rather than violates his justice. And just like in the Garden of Eden, God covers sin. This is why Jesus had to die. Do you realize that unless you understand point number one and point number two, the death of Jesus Christ on the cross makes no sense. Why would Jesus die if God was prepared to dismiss sin without a payment? Why would Jesus die if God was prepared to violate his own sense of justice? Why would Jesus die if God was prepared to sweep our sin under the rug? The only way that you can make sense of the cross is by understanding the wrath of God, by understanding the holiness of God, and by understanding the justice of God. If God's grace was prepared to just overlook sin, then Jesus died needlessly. And if God's grace overlooked our sin, then God himself is guilty of injustice. But God forbid, may that never be, God is not guilty, he is perfectly and totally just. Here is what is so awesome about the depth of the grace of God. God's grace deals with the guilt. God's grace deals with the shame. What this means is that you, in God's great act of mercy at the cross and his forgiveness, it means that you are legally declared innocent. Guilt is gone. You were objectively guilty, and now you are, because of the pardon of God, objectively innocent. It also means that the feeling of shame, <clears throat> that subjective component that you had prior to salvation, is gone. Not by suppressing your conscience, but by resting in the forgiveness of God. This means you don't have to feel ashamed any longer because of the great mercy of God. It has dissolved our shame. You no longer need to be Lady Macbeth constantly washing imaginary blood off of your hands. You no longer need to be the wicked person fleeing when nobody is pursuing. You no longer need to be constantly looking over your shoulder. God does not erase the sin. Yes, you still sinned, but he does forgive the sin, meaning the legal declaration changes from guilty to innocent. And when that happens, shame is done away with. This means that you and I no longer, because of the depth of God's grace, need to feel shame for our sin. <clears throat> Here is a mistaken way of thinking. Many people believe that God deals with the objective guilt, but he leaves the subjective guilt for me to deal with. 
we think that God erases the guilt, but not the shame. Sometimes we express our thinking in this way when we say this, I know that God forgives me, but I just cannot forgive myself. What you are saying is, I know that God objectively deals with my guilt, but he has left the shame for me to deal with myself. And when I feel like I can forgive myself, then the shame will be taken care of. But I wish to say perfectly clearly that this is an unbiblical way of thinking. God has paid the penalty in full and God offers full forgiveness, not partial forgiveness. God has not left any part left for me to forgive myself. God has accomplished the work of forgiveness in full. He has dealt with the objective guilt and he has dealt with the subjective shame. I no longer have to look over my shoulder. I no longer have to allow my conscience to plague me because of God's great mercy. When God declares you legally innocent, he deals with your shame as well. For you to say, I just cannot forgive myself, is to say that you have not accepted God's legal declaration. You have not accepted God's forgiveness. Are you seriously more pious than God? That you will withhold forgiveness in this way? Payment has been made in full. Will you rest in that payment? Or will you try to deal with your sin and your shame yourself? We have to recognize, at a minimum, the cost of forgiveness and the cost of grace. Yes, it is free to us, but it was not free to God. It cost him significantly. This is part of the reason why we praise him so much, because of the great cost he was willing to take on himself. God now offers forgiveness to all who will repent and believe in the gospel. One often often wonders, so uh, why so few people are willing to accept God's forgiveness? And there are many reasons why people will not accept God's forgiveness. Oftentimes we think as Christians that this doesn't make any sense. And that's correct. It doesn't make sense. Why would somebody refuse to accept something that is free to them? Eternal life, simply repent and believe. One of the reasons for this, and again, there are many reasons, but one of the reasons is because an acceptance of forgiveness means an acceptance of guilt. And for me to accept God's forgiveness means that I must accept his uh, declaration that I am guilty. Forgiveness is free, but it does require us to admit our guilt. C.H. Spurgeon tells a story of a man who had authority to set free any one of the French galley slaves that he chose. And so this man is walking up and down amongst these galley slaves and he begins talking with them one by one and each one tells a story of how they are innocent and they don't deserve to be there. Some of them admit guilt but they say certainly uh, my punishment is not proportional to my guilt. I, I didn't do nearly anything deserving of this. And finally Spurgeon in his story 
says this. He says, at last, a visitor came to a poor fellow who said, I have a long sentence to serve, but I fully deserve even more than that sentence. I wonder that I'm not condemned to death. For they had proceeded to extremities. They might have proved me guilty of murder, so I look upon my sentence as much lighter than I really deserve to suffer. Then he, who had received the authority to pardon whom he pleased, said, I pardon you. For according to your own confession, you appear to be the only man in the whole place who is really receiving justice, and therefore I will show you mercy so that you may go your way as a free man. Spurgeon continues and says, In like manner, the Lord Jesus Christ is always ready to bestow mercy on those who confess that they deserve the heaviest sentence of his justice. But as long as we kick against that, we cannot expect him to look upon us in love. I'd like to conclude with three points of application for us today. The first one is simply to marvel at the depth of God's grace as revealed in forgiveness. God's grace is so expansive, it bridges the farthest chasm, and I will confess to you that if you took this message today, this feeble, weak attempt to convey to you the depth of God's grace, that God's grace is far more abundant than what I have even been able to express today. In fact, if you were to take every sermon in the history of the world that was ever preached on God's grace, and you were to call through that entire list, and you were to find the greatest and the highest peaks where God's grace was most marvelously seen in a human sermon, the actual grace of God far outsurpasses that. And so, in some small way, I ask us to marvel at the depth of God's grace. That's number one. Number two, of course, is to repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. If you are a, uh, someone here who has never repented and believed in Jesus Christ, whether or not you feel shame, and you should feel shame, whether or not you do, God's legal declaration stands, and that is you are objectively guilty. But God has made a way to deal with that not through a violation of justice, but through a satisfaction of justice, and that is through the cross. If you will repent and believe on Christ, your status of guilty changes to status of innocent, and you are seen as positively righteous because of the gospel. That's number two. And number three, accept God's forgiveness. This actually is geared towards everyone, but I had in mind gearing it slightly towards believers. And that is, sometimes we fall into the trap of thinking that until I have done enough penance by feeling enough shame, then I won't really truly be free of the guilt. And this is just a call to accept God's forgiveness in full. He has forgiven all who will repent and believe, and therefore he has dealt with, yes, the guilt, but also the shame. We can have a clear conscience because of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. His grace is sufficient. His mercy is more. And it is deeper. It is wider. It is longer than we could ever fathom. And we ought to worship him because of it. Let's thank him for his grace today. Thank you, God, for your grace 
in the cross, your grace and your mercy. We pray that you might bless as we go. If there be anyone who does not know Christ, we pray that they would repent and believe in the gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.